The BBC would like to announce that the next scene is not considered suitable for family viewing. Broadcast live on D20 Radio's Justin TV channel. You're listening to the Order 66 podcast. Brought to you by Gamer Nation Studios, D20 Radio, and MapsOfMastery.com. Salutations again, Gamer Nation. Welcome back to the Order 66 podcast for Sunday, March the 3rd, 2013. And we have a fantastic show in store for you tonight. Episode number six, that is. And without further ado, we will bring on Mr. GM Chris. What is up, Gamer Nation? Yeah, dude, we do have a fantastic show tonight. And it's gotten even better because... We got excited, and then we got sad, and then we got concerned, and then we got, like, it's like the stages of grief. It's like, what is it, denial, anger, acceptance? I, yeah, anyway. Yeah, that. Um, but, you drinking. know, we, we, yes. Drinking. <laughs> drinking. Thank you. Uh, and it was around that lovely voice that sounds a lot more haggard than I would like, and I'm still scared to death that you are with us, sir, but we are proud to welcome back to the Order 66 podcast, uh, Edge of the Empire lead designer, Jay Little, who is sick as a dog. Dude, I didn't think you were going to make it tonight. Uh, neither did I, and I was really just going to record a bumper for you guys saying, I don't listen to the Order 66 podcast because you make me sick. Literally. Ooh. Ooh. Every time I'm on, I'm either sick immediately before or after. We so have that what, effect what, on people. So th- is, that, is that an STD, a Skype-transmitted disease? Is that a... <laughs> it could be. I really don't know. Wow. Wow. You've coined a new phrase. Oh. That's... Wow. I'm, i got to get that published. Jeeves, get on that. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Well, for those who may be listening for the very first time, welcome to the Order 66 podcast. This is the original podcast entirely devoted to Star Wars role-playing. And um, we have a show for you guys tonight that we've been planning for a good while, coming from uh, a couple good listener suggestions and questions. I'm very excited to get to it. So without further ado, Dave, do you want to... Are, 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 is the kid ready to be... Is the, the kid... <laughs> is the kid ready to be picked? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> that's what I was going to say. Um, is is the is the pig ready to be kicked? Yeah, the co- of course we are ready for pig kickification. So without further ado, we start with uh, a little thing called uh, stormtrooper truetry. And now, stormtrooper poetry. We went to a cantina once that catered to special tastes. Just me and the boys and a few of our mates. We'd heard it exciting, exotic, and rare, with all kinds of acts guaranteed to make you stare. We watched Quarrens and Selkath oil up and rub down, Sakubas do things and get thrown out of town. It was mostly a good time with only one butt. We got a lap dance from Zero the Hut. 
Some of the boys may never recover. Stormtrooper poetry. Yes, there we go again. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, at least we can get the news. Hello there. What have we here? Good news. Ah, yes. So it's time for news and announcements and all kinds of good things like that and everything that the Earth can provide. So, you know, yeah, that's what that is. Still got to fix that bumper, Dave. Thanks, Yoda. This is a bed. (laughs) Oh, sorry. A bed. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It could also be classified as a stinger. However, it's way too long. So it, it is. Yes. Yes. You know, it is. It is what it is. And we'll uh, get straight to the news. Uh, yeah. 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 Exactly. So <laughs> uh, feature podcast this week is, um, well, quite honestly, the ninth world. So lots of uh, RPGers, you know, are excited about Monty Cook's forthcoming Numenera RPG. Or Numerana, as Dave likes to call it. I, hey, I haven't messed up and called it Numerana in a while. <laughs> But I will also say that uh, some people are excited about Transmission from the Ninth World. And they are the first podcast devoted to this RPG. They've uh, kept us entertained and in the know with some great discussions about the updates and dev releases that uh, Monty's constantly sharing. And uh, this past week, saw the release of their fifth glorious episode, and uh, I'm going to call it Eponymous. Because that's what they called it, I think, too. Yeah, that's good. Because uh, they delve into the actual Numenera uh, that are um, a part of Numenera. If that doesn't make sense to you, go listen to the show. Right, what he said. (laughs) (laughs) So you guys can find them and a a slew of other great podcasts at uh, d20radio.com. And uh, just a bit of web goodness. Uh, so this week, uh, from the st- from the keyboard of the acclaimed Sterling Hershey, uh, as we are wont to do, we will now relate to you the awesome pudding heaped forth for consumption in Sterling Hershey's Star Wars Wednesday's blog. So the last two weeks saw Mr. Hershey riding feverishly from the Hoth wasteland of his home to lay the knowledge down yet again on obligation. Uh, with another great article, taking the time to answer fan mail around the obligation mechanic. And then this week, he gives us his peeks into other Star Wars news from around the web, specifically uh, links to this past week's Full Frontal Nerdity with a nice Star Wars RPG tie-in, YouTube videos for play examples of both X-Wing and Edge of the Empire, and of course, the big announcements and previews from FFG this week, which we will come to you uh, shortly. You can read it all, and so much more, at www.sterlinghershey.com. Ah, yes. So, yes, he mentioned Fantasy Flight News. Yeah, we have a little bit. Mm-hmm. A little Just a tad. Bit. Yeah. And so we've got lots of great articles that have gone up at Fantasy Flight that make our little Star Wars nipples get all tingly. <laughs> yeah. First up, they got really stiff from the cold to continue this uh, highly inappropriate nipple an- analogy. And um, Go with it. Yeah. So uh, at the preview for the first Force Pack expansion for the Star Wars card game. The Desolation of Hoth. Yep. Uh, with details on the new cards and themes in this expansion, even play strategies. Yeah. Very cool, dude. I've, I I know. I don't know. If, you haven't had a good chance to get to play the card game yet, have you? I have not been able to, to play the card game. Nope. Not at all. Brev and I get to play it about once or twice a week during lunch, and we have a good time with it. Jay, have you? I mean, I mean, 
obviously, I don't know. Are you, are you doing any development work at all in the card game? I don't think you are. Uh, not on the card game, though. I was uh, involved through a lot of the internal playtesting uh, at various stages through it. So it's interesting to see the evolution to how it finally came out as the final finished product that people are enjoying now. It's 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 a lot of fun. Um, it's a lot of fun. It, it's a it's a different avenue for the living card game with the you know like the sets. It's it's very very interesting, and allows for a lot more balance control. I guess just from a game design perspective. So I like it. Um, so what the, the what are the, the next two articles, Dave? They're they're all about Edge of the Empire, right? Oh yes. Uh, okay, so uh, you want to continue with the nipple in analogy there? Not really. Okay. Um, all right. <laughs> I'm just going to talk about the articles. Uh, <laughs> right. the, f- the first is 10 questions about Edge of the Empire, where FFG answers questions about the game's setting and theme, uh, how it'll fit into the other two announced products, uh, dice, obligation, just a whole lot more. And perhaps best of all, gives us new insight into the gorgeous art of the book with even more images to make us super excited. Maybe I am returning again, sadly, to that nipple analogy. Oh, um, <laughs> super excited! Super excited! Uh, Zoe, if you're listening, and I know you are, you deserve some kudos already just from that art I'm seeing. Very impressive. Yeah. Uh, and the next little article is none other than uh, by our guest extraordinaire, uh, man who has braved the wilds of being sick to be with us this evening, Jay Little. Um, you wrote this article, dude, called That Star Wars Feeling. Yes, uh, which we could, we could continue with the nipple analogy with that, but I'm not going to. Thank um, you. Yeah, I, you see, all for you, buddy. Um, but dude, it was a good article. It's like you, you kind of explain the concepts and mechanics behind the narrative dice system. And for those who read your excellent set of articles on the GSA, this is it's kind of like those just crystallized through an edge of the empire lens. Yeah. Yeah, and specifically for the FFG audience too, people who are coming to the website who may not be as familiar with. Uh, what's been going on with this game as your listeners are, or just about role-playing in general. So trying to make it a little bit more accessible. Yeah. And it was good. It was an excellent explanation. It kind of pulls the curtains back on the dice um, and rather fun. Um, But you guys can check all this out right now at www.fantasyflightgames.com. Ah, yes. Go over there right now. We'll pause the show. Go ahead. No big deal. But, um, so, um, oh, you know what? Chat room saying what's with the video because I've got I've got um, something going on over it, and you know, sorry, chat room. Oh, oh by also, the way, the, the the chat room. Yes, there are uh, uh, several dozen people watching right now live in uh, in Echo Base, our Justin TV chat. Yeah, which makes us all tingly. And of course, you guys know we uh, <clears throat> we'll get to this, but you guys can follow us live uh, on Twitter or or Facebook and uh, join these podcasts live as they are being broadcast in yes, chat. Indeed. It's fun. Yeah, and Jay's sick, so we uh, we let him off the hook, and he doesn't have to do video. So yeah, for those of you those of you in the chat room wondering, where's Jay? Well, there you go. All right, so yeah, I I, I you know I just did this little thing and, and got off schedule, but um, anyway, uh, one more time, the Gaming Security Agency, which is D twenty Radio and Gamer Nation Studios' gloved hand of gaming espionage, continues to be the best and easily most prolific go to place to get articles, NPCs, fan generated content for Edge of the Empire. And can you say that faster? No. Okay. I don't think I can, because I cannot believe that I actually said it without messing up. I'm impressed. Hey, you know what? That's, that's, that is, uh, that is, yeah, that, that's broadcaster gold right there is what that is. I mean, I've you been, tra- micro machines commercials. I have been training for, yeah, you know, I mean, just amazing. So <laughs> you guys go check it out. We've got two new threat assessments from Agent 94 and Agent 1138. 
um, iconic Star Wars threat, the Rat Ghoul and Mandalorians. We've got uh, Agent 790 with two entries on his rogue events uh, intended to bring awesome to random encounters and plot hooks and all that jazz to your table. And then not to be outdone, Agent 99 brings us uh, Equipment Lab about bows and arrows, if you will, for Edge of the Empire. So you guys check all that stuff out and tons and tons more at gsa.thegamernation.org or thegsa.us for short. Exactly. Really good articles. I thought the bow and arrows one was fun. It's yeah. like, you want to play a primitive? Here you go. Yeah. Uh, it's very cool. So, eons. 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 For, for, what, 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 uh, what the hell is eons, dude? Well, uh, yeah, we talked about this last episode, but um, so fans of the show know that, you know, uh, a couple years ago, Dave and I actually started a side business where we have a board game manufacturing company, um, board game production house. Just a small side venture. You know, we've been talking about games for so many years, and people are like, why don't you make some games? It's like, well, okay, okay fine. So we did, and you guys helped us bring our first title to market last year, uh, debuted at Gen Con last year, Edition Wars, which was a, just a fun beer and pretzels card game, very tongue-in-cheek. But we wanted to pull the stops out for our sophomore effort and go with something a little more epic, cosmic, if you will. Duh. And um, that has led to our current board game offering, uh, which is on Kickstarter right now, called Eons, mm-hmm. which is a, uh, what would you say, Dave, a resource management strategy board game. Yes, um, where the players take on the roles of universal architects Gods. that are literally building the cosmos. Gods. You could say that. Tr- try to avoid the religious undertones. But yes, Deities. one could say that. Um, and, uh, you know, it, we're, we're very excited about the project. The game is just phenomenal. Um, every play test, we just, I, I'm more in love with it every time I play. Uh, all the card art uh, is being designed by renowned uh, RPG cartographer Christopher West. Um, and uh, we're two weeks away from the completion of the Kickstarter, and we are already at, what, 104, 106% of goal, I think? Yes, we're pushing 20 grand, so we're happy. Uh, we are extremely pleased, guys. Um, but we have some hot announcements right now um, that we want to make you guys aware of, um, mm-hmm. because we have the opportunity now to make the game even better. Yes. You guys get to hear it first, because I haven't even put this on the Kickstarter site. Boom, boom, boom. Yes. Hit us, dude. All right. So um, those of you that know us know that we have uh, established a a decent little relationship with a little company called Reaper Miniatures. And, you know, we, we uh, Brian, uh, who's like their uh, director of production. I don't, I'm not sure what Brian's title is. I think he has six. Yeah, he's got a bunch of titles. Basically, he like he he like, he seems to run the day to day operations of Reaper Minis. I mean, it just it just seems to be that way. He's everywhere and nowhere all at the same time. The guy is crazy busy. Uh, but uh, what has happened is that uh, Reaper Miniatures, uh, you would know them as the guys that did a three and a half million dollar Kickstarter for their new Reaper Bones line. That's going to get them into uh, resin uh, minis. Is um, well, quite frankly, Reaper Minis has signed on to create a collector limited edition collector's item, collector's edition of Eons. And what that means is all pewter tokens and sculpted miniatures for the player icons. And we will we will leave it at that. Basically, you're a cosmic architect. And only the people in the Kickstarter and and uh, and then a limited few others that we take to Gen Con are going to see this box with all pewter figures and the little figurines that represent 
what we'll call deities or whatnot, cosmic architects. And we are going to announce this uh, on the Kickstarter later this evening. And yeah, so it's it's a big, big deal that Reaper said, hey, we love this game. We're going to make all the pieces in the game. Yeah, Re- Re- Reaper reached out to us and said, we're, we're, we're in love with the concept of this game. We want to do it. And just to clarify, folks, <clears throat> this is going to be a over 160 pewter pieces that are a part of this going to be part of this collector's set. Um, okay. Anyone who congrats guys. It's... What's that Jay? I was just going to say congrats. Uh, what you've done with that is, is awesome. And the relationship with Reaper there, it's, it's quite impressive. Thank you. Thank you. Um, they're, they're phenomenal. They, they really are. It's a, it's an amazing company. It's very family oriented. Uh, it feels like a family. Um, but yeah, guys, so this announcement's going to go up. And Dave, do we want to talk about what this add-on is going to uh, detail in terms of cost, or do we want to wait for the the update? We, I mean, we can. We we can we can tell them right now, I suppose. We, we can. It is it is it is going to be a bit pricey, guys, for a hundred and over one hundred and sixty pewter pieces, including five you know hand sculpted and originally sculpted and crafted character figurines. It's going to be a hundred dollar add-on. Yep. Um, but. It is going to be a limited run. Um, you know, we're at, at present we're not planning on producing these again. Um, so those who get this add-on will, with the base game, get again all these collector's pieces, over 160 pewter pieces, um, along with a. We're, we're doing a certificate of authenticity too. A, 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 a yes, limited, a little part. Yes, a little parchment certificate that's going to go in the box, and it's hand numbered and hand signed by us. That will say, you know, you as a Kickstarter backer, uh, and we're probably going to print, I don't know, maybe 10 extras to take to Gen Con with us. Mm-hmm. And um, you are, you know, number one of 71. I, you know, how many ever we make. Um, I, and I don't know what that number is going to be because, well, we just we just hope. <laughs> we just uh, yes, we figured, we figured the add-on in with the shipping cost because it's a lot. It's heavy. It's, it's a uh, lot of pewter. Yeah, it's uh. heavy. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's going to be really, really cool. And the cool thing is that you can paint them if you want to. Yeah. Um, now, for those who don't want to paint them, uh, like they're all going to be physically distinct enough to where you won't have to. Um, and that was a that was a big important thing to us. But um, you know, Re- Reapers uh, staff, sculptors, and designers are are doing the actual sculpting art for this, uh, and it's going to be epic. We we had a play test at Reaper just this past Saturday, and they showed us the alpha prototypes for some of the tokens, uh, which I imagine we'll get pictures of up on the... the yep, it's going to be part of the... Uh, yeah, it's going to be part on of the, the, uh, on the... On the Kickstarter update. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and those are just the alphas! And we're just like, oh my god. They're like, yeah, we were just playing around, and this is what we came up with. You know, if you like these designs, we'll do a full sculpt. It's like... <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um I couldn't I couldn't help but when I got home uh paint my little oxygen uh my little oxygen token blue. Yeah, and I know. I, I sent you a picture of it. I was like Yeah, you did. Dave so he's like, Look, I painted these. I'm like, Oh yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, you who can't paint, by the way. I, I don't know if we're gonna Master Painter Dave. We're gonna do oh. more harm than good by putting that picture up there. <laughs> Look at this dumbass. He thinks he can paint. <laughs> But anyway, guys, seriously, uh, let, let's make and the, the the more stretch goals we reach at this point for eons, the more we will be putting into the base game. The better the base game will be for the same price. So head to Kickstarter, look for the update, get that add on there if you want a collector set, and tell your friends about us. Let's about this. Let's bl- blow blow it up, guys. Let's make this game as be- as good as we can possibly make it. Head to Kickstarter right now. Do a keyword search for eons e o n s and uh, pledge if you haven't already. 
and tell your friends. Awesome. And, um, of course, for a social media kick, find us on the Facebook. Find us on the Twitter. I'm at GM Dave. He's at GM Chris. And, and uh, D20 Radio on Facebook. Mm-hmm. D20 Radio on Facebook. Eon's on Facebook, for crying out loud. Just go look at dude, Just go look us up. We're all over the place. We have, like, uh, super whatever, you know. Yeah, we're we're going to embrace Facebook, as, as even though it's not going to last, you know. It's a fad. Oh, yeah, it's a fad. Yeah, Total fad. Completely. Yeah. All right. So uh, we'll stop down now for Skill Monkey, and we will be back with you guys in just a few. Well, more than a few. Like seven minutes. Skill Monkey. Skill checks are one of the most narratively creative elements in FFG's Star Wars system. They represent opportunities for players and GMs to work together to create the kind of stories and adventures that become epic and cinematic. At least, they can be epic and cinematic if you think creatively about the dice results. Let me show you what I mean. I'm in a bit of a hurry this week. Seems my GM has decided that we've worn out our welcome on Coruscant, and we need to be somewhere else in a hurry before those TIE Fighters catch up with us. That means a jump to hyperspace, and somewhere a little more indulgent of our... uh, high-spirited shenanigans. Honestly, the Empire can be so touchy about these things. I had no idea the Senator's wife was... his... wife. We've got about a minute before these ties are in the air and on our tail to work out our hyperspace jump to somewhere that isn't here. And that means an astrogation check. Astrogation runs off your intellect score, and if that was higher, you probably wouldn't be in this particular mess in the first place. But we all work with what we're given. Let's pretend you have some favorable dice, and that's why you've been asked to make the calculation. It's not easy. There are a number of different things you can do with astrogation, but we just want to calculate a safe jump to anywhere out of the system. We're not flying the ship here. That's up to the guy with the piloting skills. We're just plotting the course. And remember, there is a reason people have droids to do this for them. You don't want to be the one getting the blame for forgetting to carry the one. Not that folks will get that chance. It's hard to complain when you've atomized the whole crew across several parsecs of space with a bad jump. A simple success at astrogation means you've found a course that manages to get you to a destination that is safe and has little to no chance of planting you in the middle of a star. Thank goodness for that. Remember, we're telling a story here, and try to make the result sound like something other than, yeah, you work out a good course and make the jump. Instead, try for, as the TIE Fighters leave the atmosphere of Coruscant, hot on your tail, you bend over the astrogation computer and rapidly calculate a course out of the system. With moments to spare and the green light of Imperial weaponry approaching, you feed the data to the pilot, and the jump is made. The distorted star field of hyperspace wraps itself around your ship, and you breathe a sigh of relief. Additional successes can mean you found a route that is somewhat faster than normal, or that it takes you less time to make the calculation and those ties never even clear atmosphere before you are but a distant memory. In any case, you are definitely on the way to somewhere where you probably haven't offended anyone. Yet. Failure can mean a number of things. 
at its simplest, you fail to plot a course and have to try again. That means the TIE Fighters are going to be getting mighty close before you can get out of there. They might even have time to get a shot off, meaning that not only are you recalculating, you are doing it in an even more stressful situation than initially. You'll probably have a harder time on the second attempt, if for no other reason than the crew is going to start yelling at you about now. The more failures you get at this stage, the harder it is for you to calculate the jump, and you might have to resort to trying to fight your way out while you try to set a good course. Over Coruscant. Home of the Imperial Fleet. Good luck with that. Advantage would be nice about now. The nice thing is, they can be applied at either end of the trip. Applied on the front end, you can set an amazingly quick route that gets you where you're going so quickly that you can stop off and have some tea. You know, to decompress and remind yourselves that chastity is a virtue. As is making sure you don't jump into the sack with just anyone who happens to catch your eye. Advantage applied to the destination end of the trip can put you not just in a safe system, but perhaps directly into orbit around a planet. Maybe you calculated things so well that you managed to set a new record on the Kessel Run, and everyone aside from some scruffy nerf herder is impressed. You could probably parlay that into some free drinks at the local cantina. You are a genuine hyperspace hotshot hero. Good for you. Threat, though, is less pleasing. It'd be just like Threat to bust your hyperspace motivator at the crucial moment. Threat could mean that you've just discovered that all the data in the nav computer is out of date, and you'll have to travel in a series of small jumps instead of the one big one you wanted to make. Maybe those Imperials were able to follow your route, and you can expect a hyperspace-capable Imperial Dreadnought to be right on your tail when you come out. Really huge amounts of threat can mean an Imperial Interdictor-class Star Destroyer is about to make things really difficult for your continued survival. Once again, the GM will be swatting you around like the wounded fly you are. Hope you brought your cast iron underpants. Similarly, despair should be avoided at all costs. It's not just that you came out into a sun or collided with a planet at the end of your journey, though that would be pretty bad. But maybe those ties get off a shot that disables your hyperdrive engines and you won't be going anywhere. You might make the jump, only to be caught in the gravity well of a massive black hole or a super-dense neutron star while still in hyperspace. Either of which leads almost immediately to a severe case of massive existence failure. Less lethal GMs may decide that despair puts you so far off your intended route that you don't know where you are. Or perhaps you find yourself lost and adrift in the unknown regions or beyond. Believe me, there are things out there you do not want to know about. Triumph can make you a galactic hero, though. With Triumph, maybe the route you planned has never been planned before, and you've just developed a new, safer, faster, and more importantly, more profitable hyperspace trade route. It could be that Triumph lets you discover a new planet, or rediscover one that once was thought lost. After all, you made these calculations in a hurry. There's no telling where you might end up and what you might discover. It could be an uninhabited planet made entirely of gold. Then what would you do? Well, you could buy a lot of senators' wives for one thing. Until next time.
As usual, Fiddleback and his fine work. <laughs> An entire planet made of gold! Because you know in Star Wars, all planets have the same ecology throughout the entire planet. It's a desert planet, it's an ice planet. You know, that's how Star Wars works, right? Yes. So somewhere there's got to be a gold planet. There has to be. Of course there has to be. Um, we're going to go out of order today because uh, Mr. J is, uh, of course, just a little bit ill. So we're going to get to the meat a little bit faster than normal. So without further ado, what do you say we just go straight into the talking points of tonight's show? I, Sounds good to me. Yeah, I think this Perfect. is a pretty, pretty, pretty good, wise thing. Um, we'll, we'll, and what Dave's saying, sir, is we'll take your insight while we have you. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> so let me share something that uh, our ever-insightful R.C. Kavanaugh wrote us about uh, social engineering, let's call it. Questions about social encounters. So here we go. Uh, RC writes this. I've got a couple of questions about social encounters. I'm seeing lots of stat blocks for NPCs with ratings for coerce, charm, and the like. How might those affect a PC? I've been operating under the old Star Wars Saga Edition mindset that players aren't targeted by these particular kinds of social skills. Sure, there are some opposed checks for NPC deceit versus PC discipline, but no opposed checks for NPC charm or coerce versus PC cool or discipline. Their own counsel will they keep on who is it to be persuaded, in other words. Their own counsel will they keep? Okay. So, why are they on stat blocks? I get that these skills might be listed in stat blocks for purposes of NPC versus NPC interaction, but is there anything dynamic that can be done with these? Maybe invoking a fear effect by having an NPC use coerce in a torture situation. Also, what are the what are you guys' methods for NPCs deceiving players without tipping them off via a discipline check? The way I'm thinking of doing it is the conversation proceeds as normal. The players will be required to say, "I want to try discern to discern whether this NPC is lying," and volunteer their discipline check without a prompt. Then, whether the M- NPC is lying or not, I add its deceit dice. If the player fails, then they simply can't get a read on the situation. But if they succeed, they get a clearer sense as to whether or not the NPC is telling the truth. Mm. Well, these are these are good questions, um, RC. Very good ones. And we felt they deserved more than the simple messages from the edge answer you were hoping for. They deserve some meat. Damn it. Meat Damn of the it. show, that is. Brr. Because your questions cut to the heart of what differentiates this system from its predecessors and lead us into a discussion of just how social interactions and encounters can work in this system and the hooks and raw mechanics that are already there to make it a fun and exciting experience for the game group. So grab your debate, gavel, gamer nation. Sharpen that silver tongue and bluster with all your musta as we prepare for some social engineering tonight on the Order 66 podcast. So uh, uh, we want to talk about this. 
bottom line is is so you know our rc's questions cut it cut into social encounters in general which is something i think that edge of the empire handles extremely well um having run it um and and coming up with some creative uses for the core mechanics that are there but before we can talk about this dave j i think we have to talk about social skills uh what what the beta book calls influence checks i i don't think we really can begin our discussion without talking about those core mechanics that govern social interaction namely these skills uh which are summarized in a nice table on page 72 of the edge of the empire beta book um there's five of them yep uh they, they each do different things right in, in different situations as a whole, uh, when used in, on social encounters, they're classified, as I said, into influence checks, and each is indicative of of the way in which you're trying to manipulate someone else. So, Jay, Dave, let's go through these skills. Let's make sure our listeners uh, understand what these five skills are in, in a short, concise manner, and and in, in what manners and mannerisms they're used, and when you would use one and not the other. Okay, sure. Okay. Number one, intimidate. <laughs> oh, wait, Wrong no, system. sorry. God dang it. I hate it when I do that. <laughs> all right, no, no, no. In, in all seriousness, charm well, is the first one, and it's uh, it's tied to your presence, and it's really what it sounds like, you know? It's just a... It is a classical persuasion, um, uh, making an appeal, an honest seduction, perhaps, mm. uh, usually apl- uh, opposed by a, a cool check. Okay. Um, what else is there? Coerce? Coerce? Jay, tell us about coerce, man. You tell me about coerce. Oh, Lord. (laughs) Or I'll make the Wookiee do it. So coerce is kind of the uh, intimidate style. Um, It can either be through physical intimidation and presence, subtle threats, innuendo. Uh, It's kind of the, the nasty way of trying to get somebody to do what you want. Gotcha. And that, that skill's tied to willpower, and I believe is opposed by discipline. Most often. Most often, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that's a good point, right? It, it doesn't absolutely 100% have to be. Right. Right. Now, you could argue, if you're a Wookiee character, that you would be making your coerce check off of maybe Brawn, uh, if you are narrating it as, I'm going to stand there and give him a deep rumble and start pulling my vibro-wax out right. as we ask to make it past the checkpoint. <laughs> these aren't the droids you're looking for what why are you waving your hand no look at him these aren't the droids you're looking for <laughs> those aren't the droids we're looking for move along move along get out of here okay so charm coerce um next we've got deceit which uh is normally tied to cunning and and you know which makes good sense and it's what it sounds like i mean liar liar pants on fire yeah. um, this is this is kind of what he was getting at in this question Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And we'll be coming to his specifics uh, later on, I, I, I will say. Um, but generally, this is also opposed by discipline. But it, it's deception. It's deceit. It's, it's, it's what it is. It's, it's lying and engendering falsehood to get what you want out of someone. Oh, uh, yes. Okay. What's next? Leadership. This, uh, this little odd duck is tied to presence. And it can take on the flavor of charm, or it could potentially take on the, the flavor of coerce, but uh, is about <clears throat> enforcing faith or trust or rallying others or instilling uh, uh, or enforcing loyalty and respect. You know, it's, it's a little bit different than 
charm or coerce in that regard. And uh, it is also, however, uh, opposed by discipline. Okay. What's our what Jay? T- tell us about the last uh, social skill. Uh, what do you want to know? <laughs> well, I could, I could, uh, you know, I've got, I've got a few credits here. I could maybe, maybe, maybe we could negotiate. I don't know. What's in it for me? I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, it, it's interesting because negotiate actually brings up a point, uh, like leadership does, of potentially in some people's minds being an odd duck. Some people might initially think that negotiate would be uh, wrapped up in charm, just like some people might think that leadership would either be wrapped up in either uh, charm or coerce, depending on the sort of attitude you are adopting or the sort of effect that you're trying to elicit. Uh, But really negotiate is the haggling and the monetary fiscal uh, or on a lot of these systems, you think of barter still being a valid way of brokering. But what I really think is interesting with negotiate is that it ties in really, really well to the whole idea of obligation. Uh, if you are trying to, for example, work down your obligation with the huts, that might be a tense negotiation and a really interesting scene as you're going back and forth. Mm-hmm. I, I like the idea of Again, non-monetary negotiation. I mean, like you say, maybe your obligation is monetary in nature. But like as a GM, I, I would call for negotiation if if somebody was trying to broker a ceasefire or, or a peace treaty. Um, I mean, that that is negotiation. You know what I mean? Yes. And uh, often I think a lot of people will see that as the diplomacy style skill mm-hmm. uh, because it could be negotiating, as you pointed out, thoughts, feelings and actions, not just currency or goods. Yeah. And obviously, understandably, this is normally opposed by cool. Um, you know, if you're, if you're trying to stand your ground in a negotiation, you know, it's how, it's how cool you are, basically. Um, so understanding those five influence checks, those social skills, we, we really need to, to get all of you listeners level on that before we continue with the discussion. Because they each have their own unique place. And this leads to the next question, which I really wanted to delve into you guys with. Which skill to use in what scenario? Now, obviously, we've given you some good advice, um, but as Jay, as you alluded to, these are guidelines. Um, any GM should encourage creating influence checks and allowing their player fair reign to suggest any of them for any situation with appropriate explanation. I, I agree completely, and especially what I like about these skills, uh, there's a lot of room for uh, helping each other out and making these combined checks that you would with skilled assistance, for example, if you set up the scene the right way, then perhaps the Wookiee is using coerce while the smuggler is using his charm. So they might be able to make an assisted check just like you would under other situations, even though they're using different skills and potentially different attributes to do it. And I think that's one of the really cool things about the flexibility and the modularity of the system. Because that would make perfect sense if you think about uh, a scene in which Han Solo is uh, trying to negotiate with Greedo with you know, Chewie standing there behind him grumbling rather than the little firefight that they have. Uh, that could easily be Han's charm and Chewie's uh, coerce or conserve, you know, Han's uh, cunning and then Chewie's brawn. Uh, there are a lot of different ways that you right. could set it up depending on how you narrate the scene. Exactly. Yep. And 
and that's the thing is it's the flexibility. I mean, look, so, sometimes it, it might not make sense to use a specific influence skill. I mean, like a skill like trying to use charm when you're flat out lying. Like you know, you know, who are you? Ah, I'm uh, sent here by your boss. Okay, well you're lying, and you say, well I want to charm him. Okay, that's that's deceit. <laughs> um, you know, we might be able to finagle it with uh, maybe maybe a different associated attribute. But the the point is that the that's the problem. Your goal is not to lie. Your goal is to get into the installation, which is the reason you've chosen to lie. Your goal is to accomplish something. And like each of the influence skills are just different ways of going about doing that. So I really want to go through some examples. And, and Jay, you've already given us a couple good ones. Um, well, uh, but, l- let me preface this by saying that this is kind of why we have a lot of different combat skills broken up. Why right. don't we just have one combat skill for fight? Because in the end, in the end, Jay goes away, and we can't ever hear him anymore. <laughs> well, the fact that there are so many different ways that you could incapacitate or damage your opponent, that's why we have the range of weapons that we have. That's why we have the different skills that we have. And in a similar way, you could think of a social encounter being a social combat, perhaps. You know, sure. each side trying to oh, yeah. damage, incapacitate the other, uh, and, and using it that way. So that's why we have so many different skills and tools available for social encounters as well. Sure, yeah, now, I, you know, I, I've drawn a lot, a lot of similarities to Mouse Guard while we've been doing all this stuff. This is this is basically how that's handled as well. It's a, it's always a combat type of situation, no matter if it's social or actually fighting with guns and whatnot. Exactly. Now, I really like the social combat idea, and I want to come back to that. In fact, I would like to spend a good portion of our discussion on that um, because it's something that I've done successfully as a GM so far in this system. But I really want to talk about you know, just in terms of these base skills, how they're so broad, you can use them to accomplish your goal. It's just a matter of being creative with how you accomplish it. And, you know, I think of examples like, like, let's say you want to get a discount from a merchant, okay? That screams negotiation, as we just talked about. But a character might, you might, might totally throw things on their head, and you should give them the freedom to do so. A character might use coerce, maybe to rough the merchant up or threaten him into a discount, which, you know, may have bad repercussions later, um, you know, by, by using fear in that situation. Deceit might even work. Maybe you're going to convince him that what you're buying is worth less than what he thinks it is. Um, you know, charm could just make you like him, you know, make him like you, um, or maybe take pity on a sob story you've got to give you a discount. So there's different avenues you can take. Um, Dave, any other examples you could think of 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 straight up situations where you can leverage multiple of the influence skills in different ways? Oh, dude, you know the sky's the limit here. You know, I mean, just just think of think of think of anything, any social interaction you could uh, trying to uh, to convince a um, a planet to rally to your cause or a local leader to help the rebellion or something like that. Um, you know, again, it, it's going to depend on on your your character and your player, and and you know, this could be leadership. You know, you're 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 appealing to a sense of duty on behalf of the local leader, right? Um, or you know, maybe you can roll a charm and and you know, make the guy want to work with you. He uh, likes you. Yeah, he likes you exactly. You could deceive him and say, you know, you're going to absolutely get slaughtered by this enemy if you don't fight with us. When you know they're not really looking in there, but they're you're just trying to get them. To, to come to your cause, you know? I mean, um, uh, coerce could even scare him into it, you know? Help me or... Uh... <laughs> or else. Yeah, help me or else. Or, you know, I mean, I guess theoretically you could even pull negotiate out and try to bribe the guy. Mm-hmm. What's beautiful about this is there are so many different applications that you can use to try to get your way. 
Uh, And what I really think is interesting about this, and this is the part that I just said I had a light bulb moment, and I'm about to blow everybody's minds here. You ready? Oh, here we go. I think in a lot of traditional role-playing games, skill checks end up being the final part of what you're determining. You set up the scene, you talk about it, you roll the dice, and it basically ends right there. Where what people have to remember or embrace about this narrative system to get the most out of it is the skill check is kind of in the middle. Think of it as the balancing point where uh, on a seesaw, we've got the narration and the description of what we're doing going uphill toward the fulcrum. Once we reach that point, we roll the dice. But remember, once the dice are rolled, there's still story to tell. Right. So what I really like about this is the skill that you decided to use going in, suddenly when the uh, when it tips over for the back end, the description of what might happen with triumph or despair or advantage, it's such a wide open Uh, area to be able to explore based on what you went in with if you use coerce and you succeed but there are uh there's some disadvantage to it well maybe he doesn't believe you for very long or maybe he's threatened but he trips a silent alarm to get some security guards there well if you had used charm instead and had failed or succeeded with the exact same number of uh disadvantage or threat showing up you might resolve or narrate that completely differently, even though that yes/no binary part is identical. Absolutely. Yep. Um, so, putting what you just said into practice, another example I was thinking of—we were talking about basic social situations—are um, you ever? You guys have seen Aliens, right? Oh no, never. <laughs> okay. Aliens. What's that? Yeah. So right. Okay. Great. Fa- famous scene where. They've just entered the facility on LB-427, and they find Newt, the small child, and she's hiding in that ductwork, and Ripley is trying to convince her to come out, okay? Um, how would you do something like that, okay? Well, you, there's, you could use any, any potential skill, and those complications can make things horribly bad, like... Um, Leadership could accomplish it if you're trying to play on that child's respective authority figures. And if you roll a triumph, it's one of those things that the child immediately is admonished and comes out. Despair, uh, oh gosh, not only did you fail, so the child's not coming out, but that perhaps, oh gosh, that child has a horrible uh, aversion to authority figures. Maybe they've got a disrespect. <laughs> and now they're afraid of you. Yep. And now they're completely afraid of you, and they take off the way Newt did. Um, you could lie to the kid with deceit, like threaten, you know, um, uh, threaten them with punishment, which would be coerce. Um, you could even negotiate uh, with the promise of a piece of candy or some credits, um, you know, which works great if you're, you know, an Ewok and, and, or, or, or a rebel trying to convince an Ewok to not be afraid of your hat. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things, if I, if I roll that negotiate check, and it's like, hey, here, you know, have a couple credits, come on out, you know, and I, I, I roll deceit, the kid will come out, grab my entire <laughs> stack of creds off my belt and take off running. Um, you know, because you've, you've triggered that. So little things that can come across as a result of, of those triumph and despair and other implications, depending that, that are unique to the skill check. So, yeah, absolutely. But you remember, you know, all through this, you got to remember that the key thing is as the GM, you're the guy who gets to set the relative difficulty of each of these checks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you should try to allow the players, you know, to to use any of the five, you know, for most situations. Some are just going to be more of a natural fit than others, you know, and, and consequently a little bit easier to pull off, right? The local leader might respond best to leadership, you know, that we talked about earlier. Uh, coercion being the most difficult. The kid, Or having the more detrimental triumph or despair scenario. Yeah. Not only that, but maybe you add some uh, additional 
threat dice or increase the difficulty if you really think that the inherent difficulty of that task right. is simply harder using coerce rather than leadership. Right, right, yeah. right. Yep. Um, what if what if the scared kid is a runaway, right? And so negotiation promising food is, is easy. Maybe you get a boost die for that, you know, or uh, let, let remember, hey, remember Princess Leia, she holds out the food and all of a sudden the Ewok dude is like, hey, yeah, oh, here you go. Exactly. Granola bar, I'm in. Yeah, boom. In. Yeah. So, I, you know, I don't know. As a GM, you just need to think about the influence skill, you know, in question and, and the situation and then let that determine both the difficulty and the setback die, you know, as you as you take in what your player wants to do. And, and, you know, always feel like it's appropriate to say, well, you know, this may not be as appropriate as this. Or, you know, you're, you're the GM. You're ultimately the, the one who gets to adjudicate the thing. And, you know, normally the difficulty of the check would be determined by your opponent's cool or discipline as appropriate. But to build on what you said, Dave, you need to be cognizant of the whole situation and adjust appropriately. And that might mean upgrading the difficulty for influence skills that are less likely to succeed um, or decreasing the difficulty if they're more likely to succeed or adding setback or boost dice as yep. needed. Yep. So let's talk about basic influence encounters. Um, this is just the, the non-complicated stuff. To begin with, the beta book outlines the common skill uses for these influence checks, these influence skills, just as our examples have earlier. They're very easy to adjudicate. You want to influence an NPC, you set the scene, you make the check, you find out if you did it or not, and then, of course, what complications may have arisen. But what about RC's question, mm -hmm. specifically? Yeah. What if an NPC is trying to influence you? How does that work? Well, that's a great question, and I think that there are a lot of different ways that you could approach that, uh, depending, again, on the situation. And I know that sounds like a cop-out, but that really is the case, that a lot of it is maybe the gut feeling of the GM uh, or things like that. But one way that I like to approach it as well is the NPC may not be actively rolling against a player character, but he could still be actively involved and reacting to it. Uh, for example their characteristic or their skill might end up being dice modifiers on the incoming PC's skill check to interact with him. So maybe the PC is trying to charm, and during the negotiation, they're actually role-playing out that conversation. So instead of setting the charm opposed to one of the uh, attributes, they might flip that around and actually make it opposed to the other guy's deceit skill, because he's just lying back to him trying to influence it, and they they are telling the story while setting the stakes like that in an opposed check. So a lot of these opposed checks can work that way by just taking the, the skills and attributes of the NPC and, and pairing them up against the player character. And I often find that for a lot of social encounters, especially these simpler ones, one check can actually handle both sides of a conversation, for example. Jay, I think you're right. But at the same time, a lot of this is going to depend, I think, on the attitudes and proclivities of your players. I mean, some, some players are going to be just fine with an NPC influencing their character. And they'll be just fine with the GM saying, you know what, you trust this guy, even though the player knows the guy's a shifty louse. So, right. you know, his character doesn't know that. So mechanics aside, I mean, there are players that can't handle that. But I really do think, though, to the heart of RC's questions, the majority of players can't handle that. <laughs> Well, I would agree. It, it's a certain level of maturity or experience that allows someone else to take over your character. Uh, it's kind of like the scenario where people hate being 
uh, let's say, hypnotized by a creature in in a, a fantasy setting, or mm-hmm. have their player just controlled and making decisions that they don't want. The infamous a player attacks the rest of the party. Uh, people generally really, really, really hate that. So it takes a certain group that can actually accept that and allow the rest of the group and the GM to run with it uh, with some trust that it's really not going to break their character, either the concept or actually cause uh, harm to their character in a way that it feels arbitrary and completely out of the player's hands. Now, and this is a point I want to come to, uh, the, the, the way that you've talked about this before, the social contract for the dice in this system almost prevent that entire situation from happening. Well, exactly, and that's one of the things that I really, really like about the dice system that I think is easily overlooked by players uh, initially coming to the system because they are looking at purely the symbols, and once the dice are rolled, they look at that and sometimes forget everything that led up to that. What I like to talk about, uh, and, and you mentioned it here, is that picking up and rolling the dice is a contract. It is a contract between the player and the GM saying, I know what the stakes are, I know what the risks are, and I know what the rewards are. Both sides have agreed to it because the GM has set a difficulty saying, okay, if you want this reward, here's what you have to get through. And the player has said, okay, here's what I'm trying to do. How complicated is it going to be? So once you have that dice pool assembled, that's what I love about having the positive and the negative all in one. That's why I love having the GM slowly add dice as you are telling the story. Because as that dice pool builds, you get a real sense of what's at stake, what's going on. Once they pick up those dice and roll them, both sides uh, have agreed and and committed to whatever the outcome is, good or bad, and in many cases, a little bit of both. That way, it's always both sides win. Mm -hmm. I got to agree. And this is one of the key things that I I know I'd put in in my own show notes for this. We talk about making the player make the check. Um, if, If the player, if the PC is being the one influenced... The fact that they can still make the check is going to enforce that that contract and, and really put that power into their hands from their perspective. Yeah, um, that exact same dice pool could be rolled by either side. Exactly. Yes, player is rolling it. He's going to feel a lot more empowered. Secondly, he's going to be thinking a little bit more about the skills and the situation. And then also, do I want Destiny to go in this? If I am in charge of this dice pool, if this is my dice pool, then I get to make that next decision of how important is this task. I can actually pony up and say, yeah, this is important by investing a a destiny point. And I've communicated to the GM and the other players that this is a big deal. And so the fact that the way the dice are structured, how the opposing check is determined by your, your opponent's relevant dice and the opposing skill it, as you said, it allows you to come at it from both sides. And that allows you, and this is imperative, listeners, always let the PC make the check whenever possible, even if they're the target of the influence skill. So that skeezy merchant is trying to lie to the PC. Well, okay, that's a deceit check on his part opposed by discipline. What you don't want to do as a GM, usually, is make a deceit check with a difficulty opposed by the PC's discipline. What you want to do is have the PC make a discipline check opposed by the merchant's deceit and you don't have to tell him that it's opposed by his deceit it's like okay, exactly yeah exactly based on this scene you need to make a discipline check here's the difficulty internally exactly. the gm knows that that difficulty is based on these factors the the bad guy's deceit skill plus um 
some information that he gained about the PCs earlier, plus the fact that he has backup in case the situation gets ugly. Well, the player doesn't need to know any of that. They just need to know that these are the dice, and up to this point, we have described what's going on, and the environment is going to, to show me how this resolves, why these dice were in here. I'm going to find out one way or the other, most likely. The, the key thing is the player becomes the active character. The player becomes the, the decider, as you said. You know, the, the success or the failure rides on him in his mind. He's not some passive victim thrown to the winds of the GM's fate. He's the one making the role, even if he's the one being affected by someone else from an influence perspective. So, you know, for, for negotiation, for example, um, you know, uh, um, you know the, the PCs are trying to, uh, uh, you know, you got a merchant that wants to buy uh, stolen goods from PCs. And, and he's trying to negotiate with them. And so he wants to make this negotiate role. Um, you know, you, you can play it up and say, yeah, he's trying to really get something out of you. He's trying to pay you less for this. Give me a cool check. And this is going to be the difficulty. And the difficulty would be most likely that merchants negotiate. Okay. Um, appropriately. But at that point, that power is in the PC's hands. What other, what other examples can you guys think of for this, where we can, we can take a, a, an NPC influencing action and turn it around, and how would we turn it around for the PC to make the role? I, I think another great example is going back to A New Hope and the, the scene where Greedo and Han uh, run into each other in Mos Eisley. Greedo is obviously trying to intimidate and coerce Han to come along, or he's threatening physical violence. Right. But Han is the hero. Han is who we care about. So that whole scene resolves around Han Solo's personality. And we, you could argue that Greedo is making a coerce check and Han is responding with his cool. How about and so uh, oh, the sorry. player, the, the player in charge of Han is going to build that dice pool and roll it. And in his mind, he's doing this because he's just cool as a cucumber and he's going to slide his way through this while Greedo is trying to coerce him. He might not know that that's exactly why those dice are in there, but he still feels like this is his scene. Uh So let's fast forward a little bit in episode four. And how about, uh, we're all fine here. Situation normal. How are you? Perfect (laughs) example. Perfect. (laughs) Uh, Absolutely. So just switching around your mind frame, RC, to go back to your original question, of and that's the real difference between this mechanic and some prior systems where it's a d20 roll based on a dc so one side has to make that d20 roll um in this case it's a pool and there's this this scale of economy on both sides so if if an npc is going to make a roll with a set difficulty based on a pc attribute it is almost the same role to uh have the PC make the attribute roll with the difficulty based on that influence check. I mean, does that make sense, guys? Or am I, am I making sense with this? Am I crystallizing these thoughts correctly? It makes sense to me, and it, it sounds like something that was probably considered during the design process. That's amazing. <laughs> right okay, so we beat that horse into the ground. I'd like to move on to uh, what, what I consider to be the really big thing about this show. Uh, this particular meet, I was really excited to talk about complex influence encounters. Um, social combat, as you said earlier, Jay. While our examples above, everything we talked about, are going to go a long way towards letting those traditionalist players become comfortable with being the influenced instead of the influencer in their own minds, 
I think there's another great GM tactic that you can have up your sleeve. I've done this in my games. It's worked beautifully. And it will not only make the outcome even more acceptable to the player, but it can give you an easy way to turn what would be a normal simple influence and check into an entire encounter using the rules that are already there in Edge of the Empire in new and creative ways. I can't wait. (laughs) Well, I I don't think I'm going to be telling you anything new, because I quite imagine that you've already... uh, 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 done this or considered it, even though it's not directly called out in the beta book. Um, but social combat. I, it is actually possible to have social combat where influence checks are the weapons. Um, because of that skill system versatility in Edge of the Empire, all skill checks are grown and specialized in the same ways. This can be done now in ways that prior systems weren't balanced for. Um, in, you know, and and what, what I mean by that is in, in prior iterations of Star Wars systems uh, with D20 mechanics, uh, attacks and defenses are coordinated and advanced very differently from skill checks. In Edge of the Empire, they're all skill checks, so players can specialize in them and defend against them in the same manner. Um, In social combat, I think things can get from simple to complex, involving one or more PCs or NPCs. It's really just a matter of, of thinking of attacks and damage differently. Um... So let, let's let's get into this, guys. I I, 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 t- I tentatively title this "Words as Weapons," um, because influence skills to me are structured like combat skills are. They can be used offensively in social situations in the same way, but in this case, instead of dealing wounds to a character, I think they can deal strain. Exactly, um, and that that's really a one of the big reasons that strain is in there. Strain isn't just uh, a reserve that you use to monitor how many additional maneuvers you can perform during a tense combat encounter. Right. Strain is, is a measure of your mental fortitude and your willingness to stick with something. So in a social encounter, you could substitute uh, strain for the wound system and use the same system. And when somebody's strain has been stripped off, they might not pass out, but they've either given up or they've conceded something uh, or one of those tasks has been you know crossed off of the the player character's list, uh, so strain thresholds can be used, and and like you said, you can almost turn those social encounters into a combat if that's an easier idea for the players to wrap their mind around. Now, if we're going to do this, there's a few changes we have to consider. Obviously, soak soak would have no bearing in this kind of combat. Um, and but physical... maybe your willpower does. Now that's a question. I mean, is it, would it be possible you could have a you know have your willpower create its own soak? Um, well, absolutely. I mean, you're using brawn to soak physical incoming damage, so it would make sense in that situation to uh, use willpower, which is really the mental equivalent of brawn in many ways, or at least in this application. If the if the scene and the setup is about a social encounter and you're not mixing physical damage with strain damage, because I think that could be a little wonky and harder for players to track. Mm-hmm. But if you're really uh, you know, wrapped up in a social encounter, then I think that you can make analogs to all of the combat situations that would happen with you know, blaster pistols and really apply them to a war of words that you might have in a tense negotiation uh, or if they're presenting their case to the Galactic Council or something like that. So you can use a lot of those same uh, abilities, skills, and ideas in a a social setting. Now, 
you talk about physical damage. Another change we got to consider is that physical damage or injury, you say, probably shouldn't result from this, obviously, for obvious reasons. Now, if you're going to run this like a true combat and thus have the ability to crit, um, that makes about half of the options on the current critical injury chart not very usable. Although, interestingly, the other half are totally usable. <laughs> um, you know, and having said that, as a GM, I've I've tried a couple of things. I've gotten creative with my crit options; those of the psychological kind. Um, usually, I can make them up on the fly, or I've even I've even heard tell of some GMs going so far as to construct additional critical injuries to replicate social or emotional injury. So, huh. I don't know. That's a possibility. Words hurt. Words yeah, hurt. I still remember some of the the names I was called in high school. So yes, those critical wounds. <laughs> <laughs> Those injuries can last. They do. It's like post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes, sadly, you know, that is a, an all-too-good example uh, that I'm all too familiar with as well. So there are things like that. But also, if you didn't want to create an actual critical mental injury, if you will, then there could be some stakes that the GM had set beforehand where he had said, you know what, if there's a critical then, then the counselor from uh, Alderaan just leaves. He he is removed from the conversation. He's no longer an active participant. He's left. So there could be other stakes involved with some of these critical uh, things as well. So I want to run through some scenarios with this because I think people learn best by example. Okay. Um, and I want to, I want to, I want to, I, I, I kind of came up with two as we were preparing for this one very simple between one PC and an NPC and another, which is a bit more complex with an entire party and a group of NPCs. And the first and most basic one that came to me is the interrogation. Okay? You got a PC, say Princess Leia. <laughs> uh-huh. Being interrogated by a big guy with a black cape. Potentially, yes. Okay, but let's let's just say you got a PC who's being interrogated by a sadistic Imperial moth, okay, who's intent on wringing the location of his comrades out of him. He's cuffed to a chair in an ISB holding cell, and the PC is staring his foe in the eye as the interrogation begins, and we've set the scenes. So I, I kind of envisioned the PC and the NPC taking turns making social attacks, um, you know, these various influence checks, after establishing initiative to see who goes first. Um, maybe maybe the moth opens up with a coerced check opposed by the PC's discipline, and he rolls three successes, two threat. So his abuse tacks up three strain onto our hapless PC, but, you know, that moth had a couple threat, and so maybe he's getting a bit pedantic, and the GM says, you know, the threat results in the PC recognizing, like, a common interrogation technique, and, and then he rattles the moth with an offhand comment about his sophomoric interrogation abilities, <laughs> and... You know, the moth's taken aback by this and suffers a setback die on his next check, which is something, you know, again, two threat, setback die in combat. Same thing. Um, you know, maybe the, the PC then retaliates back with a social attack of his own. Or maybe, again, we use that inverse relationship and he makes discipline as his weapon, trying to show the moth he can outlast him. Uh, you know, maybe uh, opposed by the moth's coerce. Um, <clears throat> maybe he decides to go for broke and pl and lie. Maybe he plays the broken man. He starts sobbing uncontrollably. He tells them off all of his dirty, darkest secrets, all of which are lies, of course. So in that case, he would make an attack with deceit. Um, you know, but either route, any successes he generates tally up strain for the moth, which which could mean different things, as you pointed out earlier, Jay. Uh, I mean, like, if, if the PC went, like, the discipline route, maybe it represents the moth's frustration, and when he hits the threshold, he, he gives up on the interrogation, you know? 
Um, if he goes the deceit route, maybe that that strain threshold represents his acceptance of the lie. You know, uh, so you know he truly believes the illusion at that point, and the PCs won, and the moth thinks he has what he's got, and so he leaves. Uh, those are great examples. Are you sure you're not a skill monkey? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, ask my wife. Uh, <laughs> um, Had but I know there, that's huh? how I would see it playing out in terms of a of a basic social encounter. Back and forth, they would go check after check after check, and it, it becomes a true encounter until one strain threshold is reached, and either the PC breaks or the moth walks away empty-handed or maybe with a lie in his head. Um, I don't know. Thoughts on this, guys? Yes. I agree. <laughs> we, we will subscribe to your publication. Now, wh- what's interesting here is that could be a really, really cool scene. Uh, yeah. Now, what's interesting here is if it is a large group of player characters, ah. then the GM and the player have to kind of find out, you know, how much of a, a side scene, how much spotlight time does this one player get? If he's been in the spotlight for the rest of the entire session, then maybe this entire encounter comes down to one check. Exactly. And it's resolved that way. However... Let's say this is toward the end of the the night, and this PC has not really been involved. He's failed all of the checks. He really hasn't had that many other skills that apply to him. And so, in that situation, the GM might uh, decide that you know this is his time to shine. So let's go ahead and give him a little bit of extra uh, spotlight time. And the other players can either encourage him or or help suggest ideas, uh, even if they're not there with their player characters to actually affect the scene significantly. Okay, let's talk about an example where they are there with the player characters. Um, so when I was doing my brain dump and, and like like ranting in show notes about preparing for all this and thinking about all the ways this is done, um, I started thinking about a scene where you got a group of PCs that are trying to gain an audience with a powerful crime lord. Oh, the dance-off. Ah, ah, he remembers the dance-off from whatever I guess. Um, but let's get a little more uh, edgy, okay? So... I'm setting the scene, you got three PCs. You got a Politico, a Scout, and a Slicer, okay? They're entrenched in a seedy cantina, and they're trying to convince the henchman of a powerful crime lord to set up an audience between his boss and them. The henchman doesn't want anything to do with them. He doesn't want to help them out. He's not interested in, in risking his own neck by putting them in front of his boss. Um, so he needs convincing, all right? And that would be the encounter. But the trick is he's also backed up by a trio of minion thugs that are sitting at his table. And so this is, you know, I'm thinking about a social combat with three PCs, a henchman, and three minions. And I think this is totally doable. Um, I would, oh, I like... Absolutely. So absolutely. What, what, would you, what would you do, man? You, I mean, would you, you establish initiative order? I mean, to, to, like normal for combat? Oh, I would. And allow the player characters to pick and choose. Like, maybe it's, you know what, I'm going to lead with a threat. And if he goes for it, then you guys are going to follow up. And that's going to kind of set the scene for how things go. But if, if I fail on that, then Bob, why don't you come in and you just kind of gloss over it with a, a charm check saying, no, 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 you know, that's not what we're like. And, you know, manage the situation that way. But what's really cool is you can also create maneuvers that would do this. What, what's the equivalent of flanking? You know, what's yes. The equivalent of uh, higher ground. Well, there are social advantages as well. Maybe you're pulling rank on them. Maybe you are recalling an important fact or something that was brought up earlier in the session. Maybe it is actually a physical maneuver. I pull out my gun. 
that can change the tenor of a negotiation. Uh, maybe it's moving. The wiki is going to stand next to the counselor. Okay, yep. that that could certainly help. A co- hey, what a, what about check. what about like um, you know you've got a slicer in your group and uh, goes in and uh, pulls off a computer check to dig up dirt. You know, on on the henchman or you know on the on the BBEG, you know, crime lord, and uh, this will give a boost die to your politico next time he's up. Oh, absolutely. You know, or or let the scout kind of go around the crowd using charm to get people to like him, and then kind of de facto increasing his influence, I guess, of the group. Like more people are 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 directing their attention to the exchange between the henchman and the politico, and and you know whatever. I don't know. You know. Totally, and like, like when, when, so when the, uh, the, you know, the, the that scout who you you put into question, maybe he laughs at a, a scathing quip from the politico, but because he's used his charm check for the patrons, so do the patrons, and it embarrasses the hell out of the henchman and his goons, causing him strain. Right. Okay. Right. Um, I love the idea with the slicer because in that case, what you have is a computer's check that is actually being used as a social and combat weapon <laughs> check. Okay. Um. That's absolutely brilliant. Another interesting thing to take into account with social encounters, and one of the things that I think is a little bit more flexible, is the the concept and scope of time. In combat, most people assume that a round is a very brief moment of time. Now, in in a lot of situations, you could narrate that out as just a couple seconds, or a round of combat represents several minutes, depending on the scene. But in social encounters... I find that rarely are things done in real time, if you will, uh, unless they're using deceit to try to bypass and fast talk somebody. Right. But if you're really trying to manipulate and work over, let's say, a crowd or convince a regional chancellor to, to uh, I don't know, lift the death sentence, uh, you know, whatever it is, that might represent hours of time. That might be a petition and a an attempt to change an idea or a concept or an ideology. So maybe each round represents a week. You can actually stretch time out a lot more flexibly in a social encounter than I think you can in a combat encounter and have it make sense. I, that, that is an excellent supposition. Um, and it, it lends credence to the idea of using more unusual skill options that can take some time. Um, and then it also allows each dice pool to have a lot of impact on the overall encounter. Yes, yes. Yep. You know, and I, I think so. I think back to this this scenario, this this you know three PCs and the henchmen and, and three minions and you know everything you guys have said. You you got the Politico poning up to the table, maybe with negotiation if he wants to bribe the dude or or deceit or coerce or however. You know, you got your scout potentially influencing the crowd or maneuvering closer to provide boost dice to a coerce check, maybe some intimidation. Maybe you even have the scout whip out his pistol and flourish it, you know, in, in a really fast, ridiculous manner, showing how quick he is on the draw. I would call that a, a, a range light check. Um, you know, I could see the henchman firing back with a cool um uh with with a cool check uh and then uh you know to give one or more of the pcs strain eroding their confidence and and you know the minions uh serving in the same role maybe as the scout helping use the crowd to their advantage or making their own glib or snide remarks or or coerce checks to enforce their leaders words and actions but the bottom line guys the point of all this is that each of these actions is just another skill check 
regardless of how creative it is, and you can get creative with it, with successes causing strain and threat, advantage, triumph, and despair functioning as normal for any skill check in a combat encounter. And when it's all said and done, you've involved the entire party in a big encounter that could be an entire session that is nothing more than social combat. So what happens if the PCs lose? Well, then they lose. <laughs> but it's got the formality and the acceptance of any other combat. If your PCs lose a combat, a physical combat, they're not going to get angry with the GM for railroading them. They were in control of things. And in, in combat, it might be a retreat. You know, they were defeated, so there's a strategic retreat. Right. Well, in a social encounter, failure may be they don't get the motion passed. They don't get the crowd on their side. They haven't convinced the uh, crime lord. So whatever the negative outcome of that is, okay, you're, you're in a choose-your-own-adventure and flip to page 57 if you succeed convincing the crime boss and, you know, page 68 if you don't. Well, depending on, on how diverse the outcomes the GM has in mind, failure may simply be when we go to the next decision point or story arc, they go to the worst possibility. Right, exactly. Right. But the key thing there is that it's not GM fiat. I'm not the victim of a dice roll my GM made. There's no uncontrollable situations. It's all in the player's hands at that point. And, and that's especially important. I was going to say that's especially important in a social encounter because, as you said before, players don't like losing control of their characters. Right. And this is a way to empower them again and really feel like they are the ones uh, in, in charge, in control. Yeah. Now, what's interesting about applying social encounters like combat is it doesn't work for every single situation, and that's fine. But when it seems right, I would encourage the GM to give it a shot at least and try it a couple times. It may not feel uh, perfect the first time because they're not used to applying a rule set like this to an encounter in that way. But after a few encounters, I think what's really interesting is often you'll see the players get more involved. The, those players who might gloss over the talky-talky bits in between combat are suddenly a little bit more uh, interested. They're invested more, and they feel more involved in what's going on because they understand it more. Exactly. And then that's the key to not only having fun, but gaining player acceptance, which can lead to fun. So, guys, I think we've dropped some serious knowledge here, um, and... I, I get excited when I talk about this because of the possibilities that can happen for exciting play that I think a lot of Star Wars RPG veterans who've been playing multiple systems don't think about because it wasn't necessarily an easy option previously. So love social encounters, guys. Live them. Use them. Um, and and, and, and our my, final, my, my final bit of advice to be able to resolve a social encounter is just think of some of your favorite scenes from the movies. Not all of them are the starship combats. Not all of them are the exchange of blaster fire. There are a lot of really interesting, intense social encounters. And then take a look at those and decide if I was the game master, how would I run this scene? And then you can apply that to your game and, and you know, make it a little bit more approachable for everybody at the table. Words of exactly. wisdom from our GMJ. <laughs> yeah, I am going to have to get a permanent moniker, aren't I? Something like that, you know? I mean, yeah. You will. 
Well, R.C. Kavanaugh, I hope that answers some of your questions, and uh, I hope you were not too disturbed by the fact that we took your little question beyond uh, a simple messages from the Edge Q&A and into a full meat of the show. I think it was worthwhile. So if, Jay- if those listeners at home want to play a little game, um, my strain is gone. You guys <laughs> have, have beaten me senseless, and I'm going to have to make a strategic retreat. So uh, now, listener land, how would you resolve that as a social encounter? <laughs> Dave and Chris have been using what? Coerce? Charm? Deceit? How did they get me on the show? I was sick. What What on earth could they possibly have uh, tempted me with? Or what were the stakes involved? Um, and, you know, kind of think about that as you, <laughs> as you plan your next social encounter. What would you do to Dave and Chris if you encountered them socially? There you uh, go. See? It, it's scary. And I think you would treat it like a combat. <laughs> Jay, every time I talk to you, I treat it like a combat. (laughs) (laughs) Touche. Dude, thank you so much for coming on. I know you're ill. I'm totally... Thank you. Thank you. Glad glad to do it. Uh, Hey, congratulations again with the success of Eon on Kickstarter. Make sure you guys check it out if you haven't yet. And uh, I I enjoy being on the show, so it was worth even risking, I guess, permanent damage to my larynx and voice. (laughs) Um, just for you guys that's awesome we we will call you officially backer number one all right guys have a good one I'm out thank you Jay thanks and there he goes Mr. Jay Little lead designer for the Edge of the Empire game by Fantasy Flight you guys check it out Uh, we uh, of course are a little bit out of uh, out of order from our normal show however we still have fragments from the rim and transmission from the rim, which you will hear now. And we will be back with you guys in about seven and a half minutes. And so we will enjoy the dusky dulcets of GM Phil first. The farther you get from the core worlds, the more mysteries there are in the galaxy. Secrets that can mean the difference between success or failure, triumph or despair, life or death. Take a seat. My friend here will reveal one of these secrets. One of these fragments from the rim. Oh, it's you. Ah, I'm sorry. That's not fair. Look, I've had a rough couple weeks. You had nothing to do with it, so there's no point inventing my frustration at you. You remember the last time I was going to go buy that fire spray from a contact of mine on Bespin? Well, they wouldn't deliver, so I had to fly myself out to pick it up. I decided that since I hadn't taken a vacation in some time, I'd book a flight on Star Tours. Reports were that their Star Speeder 1000 were the roomiest and most comfortable in the Outer Rim. I could have booked passage with Bezpin Direct, but I'd heard good things about the Star Tours line. That was my first mistake. From the moment I stepped on that shuttle, I had a bad feeling about the whole endeavor. To start off, the shuttle took off without our pilot droid. Some protocol droid was in the pilot's seat working on the binary motivator and no one told the tower because the automated takeoff system engaged despite the squealing droid's objections. Good thing his astromech counterpart in the droid socket was more competent than he was or else he probably would have never made it out of the station. As we were leaving, the ship was stopped by Imperial stormtroopers looking for some rebel spy. Naturally, the person they displayed was on board. Actually, it was the person sitting next to me. In any event, the stormtroopers started blasting, the astromech took over and started us running, and soon we were being chased by TIE fighters around the starport and the surrounding space. That plucky little astromech seemed to be doing alright, but programmed the jump to hyperspace too quickly. We ended up on Tatooine, 
flying right through the middle of some pod race and nearly crashed into the desert. Insanity. We took to orbit and tried to get back on course for Bespin. Then the 3PO unit received a communication from some Mon Calamari admiral named Akbar. He said that the person sitting next to me was vital to the rebellion against the Empire. I wanted nothing to do with it, but the R2 unit did, so once again we were captives to the whims of the astromech droid. We jumped into some desert system ringed by an asteroid field and were immediately beset upon by the famed bounty hunter Boba Fett. And as if trapped in some twisted commercial for the fire spray craft I wanted to buy, the bounty hunter immediately started shooting at us, blowing up asteroids left and right and pirouetting around and spinning through the asteroid fields trying to get us to crash or just explode from his own blaster fire. Finally, he launched a sonic bomb at us, but the astromech droid activated our flash cannons and knocked it back at Fett. It exploded, knocking Fett off course and giving the R2 unit time to jump to the real rendezvous, the Rebel fleet. The ship landed on board a Mon Calamari warship, and we were all taken in as new members of the Rebel Alliance. I wasn't about to have any of that, so I snuck away, and after several days, I was finally able to make it back here. I called my contact on Bezpin to try to let him know what happened and see if we were still set to make the sale. But he told me he sold the ship. He had an offer as good as mine, and since he couldn't reach me for several days, he took it. I was livid, but I suppose I can't blame him. I'm not going to get all choked up about it. Although he might if I ever see him again. (sighs) Look, this trip, it has taught me three things. First, beware of plucky astromech droids. Second... A fire spray systems patrol craft can survive a sonic bomb. And third, never book with Star Tours. Seriously, what kind of Mickey Mouse operation are they running over there? Thanks for stopping by. Pay your tab at the door, and may the imps always be one step behind you. Oh, you're back. No, no, don't worry about the face. I'm fine. Come, come, sit down. Times like these, I must embrace my repeat customers. You're fairly new to the rim, if I recall. Let me let you in on a little secret. Never borrow money from a Doug. Especially one named Vinnie Bulba. Let's skip the usual transmissions today, and let me tell you more about this vicious little loan shark. Vinnie Bulba hails from the planet Malastrar where he's the son of a Malastarian council member. Word on the street is, his vicious and brutal nature got him disowned from his family and outcast from the planet. For Doug's society, one has to think he's done something really bad. However, this gossip is fake, planted by Vinnie Volba himself to boost his rep and cred. I have it on good authority that Vinnie's lack of coordination and his obsessive sabak addiction made him a disgrace to his family and he left the planet in shame. Vinny tried his hand at pod racing when he first hit the outer rim. Again, though, his lack of coordination, coupled with his mediocre pilot skills, made it a very short career. My sources tell me that Vinny's mother takes pity on her only son and sends him a generous stipend every couple months. Vinny will never admit this fact, but the information is solid. The money he doesn't blow on Sabak, he loans out to the unfortunate souls he thinks he can bully around. Vinny is a natural negotiator and intimidator, and extremely cool under pressure. Due to this fact, he is a pretty darn good Sabak player, actually. He also drives a hard bargain. However, playing to his love of Sabak, and maybe throwing in that information I told you about his mother, could gain you a slight advantage in any dealings with the Doug. 
Bear in mind though, if things aren't going in Vinny's way in any negotiation, he usually starts playing with a thermal detonator he always keeps around. Rolling it back and forth along the table, or just playing a little game of one person catch. It usually gets everyone's attention. I have a sinking suspicion that detonator is a fake, but I have been unable to confirm this. Vinny also carries around two holdout blasters, just in case. He is said to be a quick draw and a decent shot, though I've never actually seen or heard of him using them. He has a Barabell Enforcer on his payroll, as well as various other thugs that usually do his dirty work if payments aren't coming in. They hit pretty hard. Using hired thugs makes it so Vinny can have plausible deniability if the situation turns fatal, which it has known to do from time to time. Vinny's tough and he's no fool. He can see through most bluffs, doesn't respond well to intimidation, and I haven't seen a soul that's found a way to charm that cantankerous little shit. If you can't get a legitimate loan, may I suggest you look elsewhere. However, with the knowledge I've given you, if you have to deal with Vinny Bulba, you might be able to tip the odds in your favor. That is, unless you bring a gand to the table. Never bring a gand. Vinny hates them. Oh, well, I know that's not our normal talk, but I hope that'll do. Can you have the bartender get me a bag of ice for my face on your way out? Thanks. As usual. Very well done, Phil and Crimson. And obviously, as normal, uh, in terms of transmissions from the Rin, Vinny Bulba and his lone sharky ways can be found and downloaded for play in your game right now on the GSA blog. That's right. Is that like Sebulba's thug cousin from Boston? Hey, what about these, man? <laughs> Vinny, Vinny, Vinny. <laughs> I don't know. Oh. Good work, guys. Superb work, guys. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, of course, uh, you know, life at uh, Order 66 would not be complete without this. He doesn't seem to take a hint, this guy. I was beginning to wonder if you'd got my message. Messages from the Edge. Boy, am I glad to hear your voice. Ah, yes. So, we have time for an abbreviated messages from the edge. I didn't think we were going to get to it tonight, so I'm pleased. I really didn't think so either, but, you know, hey. We will uh, address a question that came to us from uh, an email that we got from William McBride. And he says this. Order 66, that's us. I never listen to you, but I'm glad that I've never had to listen, because... I don't really want to hear you guys talk about Age of the Empire because I really love the system. (laughs) (laughs) My group played a lot of Saga Edition, and the transition to the new game has been rough at times, and we're working with the beginner set. We all like the system, but we are so used to having tactical maps for combat that it's making our combat encounters slow because my players want to know how far they can move, like in squares. We all know that this is an abstract system, but we're having trouble breaking away from the old mindset. How have you guys done this, and what can you give us for advice? Good question. Well, Mr. McBride, um, <clears throat> you're not the first to express this problem. Uh, many of us who were weaned on a tactical map RPG have to struggle to function in the new mind frame of Age of the Empire, especially in terms of combat. So let me start by saying this. 
it will come to you, sir. It will come. You just have to give it some time and some play. But there are some things I've observed and used myself to help tacitly enforce the new mind frame and help players along. First of all, maps awesome. Having played the Edge of the Empire with them and without them, I prefer it with. But if at all possible, use maps without grid lines. That, that sounds like such a strange thing, but it, it makes total sense. On the table, you can use gridless maps, kind of the ones that come with the beginner game. Yes. Or maps with very soft grids that aren't obvious, but were subtly designed to be there if you were looking for them. Uh, the vast majority of Chris Webb's uh, maps mastery are like this. If you're playing online and you're playing with a map sharing program, try to disable the grids and the snap two features um, if the program will let you. And that's one reason to use Roll20.net because it can. Other simple things you can do uh, for you and your players to let go of the old mindset. If they're cool, move their minis for them and put them in a non-tactical positions as you move them or dead smack in the middle of a grid intersection. It'll unlearn you and yours. And last, try a section without a map at all. Just try it. Often it'll kickstart that part of the brain that makes returning to the map the right way for Edge of the Empire possible. So, good question, William. Keep playing. It will come to you, and hopefully some of these tips will smooth you guys into that transition. So for us, I can tell you as a player, uh, I was able to make the transition very, very well. Yes, Chris's audio was terrible, um, but, you know, hey, Skype is what it is today for us. The The idea for us to go, our group basically, to go from your squares uh, to nothing <clears throat> were basically... You know, we had to do it, right? So, oh my God, we had to do it, and it was one of those. It was one of those times when we 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 were forced to embrace it, and so therefore we did embrace it. And it made things so much easier when Chris started rolling the maps back out again, and we started using a little map here and there because we had been playing in our own minds the entire time. Mm-hmm. You know, we never we never drew a map. We never looked at a map. We had it in our mind, you know, okay, so where where was this office in relation to the big tank that we wanted to blow up? And then where's that where's that, that landing platform that Kat decided to go throw herself off of? You know, and, and we're all imagining this and we're basically building the story in our head. Right. And so I would I would absolutely wean your players off a map entirely and then bring a map back in because it forces them out of their comfort zone and that's for us that was the kickstart that we needed that when that was it I mean yeah. that was end of story we embraced the range mans because we had to embrace the range mans you know your players will be like well I don't know exactly where I'm gonna go whatever and all right get the sand out of your vag and start playing with your brain what he said yeah you know there you go. <laughs> Oh, guys. Well, listen, um, abbreviated, as Dave said, uh, messages from the edge tonight, but we have a lot more questions to get to, but we want more. So how can you get us these questions? Easiest way is to travel to our forums and post it up. Head to www.d20radio.com slash forums, register, 
and head to the Order 66 podcast boards where you'll find uh, messages from the Edge thread. You can also email your questions to us at gmchris at d20radio.com or gmdave at d20radio.com. And if you're brave enough, you can leave us the question via voicemail on the D20 Radio hotline. Ah, yes. Which is uh, 262-D20 Radio. 262-320-7234. Oh, yes. Big props to Jay Little for braving the uh, the the sickness of the upper north of the U.S. to <laughs> to come on and endanger his larynx with us tonight and drop some serious info. He he dropped some serious knowledge on us. Yeah, excellent, excellent guys. So we want to hear what you want us to talk about. Like R.C. Kavanaugh experienced, uh, drop us a line through the same ways. Let us know what you want us to talk about, and we shall. So. There's a lot more coming, guys, and the book ain't even out yet. No. (laughs) Oh, well, that's all I got, man. Good, because that's all I got, too. (laughs) Thanks again, guys, uh, for listening, and we will catch you in another couple weeks. This is GM Chris wishing you peace, love, and good gaming. And this is GM Dave saying, keep them dice rolling. This podcast and related website are not endorsed by Lucasfilm Limited, the Walt Disney Corporation, 20th Century Fox, or Fantasy Flight Games. It is intended for educational and informational purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, all names, pictures, or references to any Star Wars vehicles, characters, or other Star Wars related items are registered trademarks of Lucasfilm Limited, Fantasy Flight Games, or their respective trademark or copyright holders. All original content of this podcast, including any audio, visual, or textual information, is the intellectual property of the Order 66 podcast and the Gamer Nation LLC. Mm-hmm.